Well, let us continue in our worship this morning. Please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. We want to hear from the Lord this morning. We want to hear from God's Word, as we always do. But instead of continuing in Ephesians, I thought I would bring a special message from Psalm 46. Hopefully an encouraging uh, message to you. This is one of my favorite psalms. It helps us on an individual level, helps us as a church, even as Christians throughout the world, look to this psalm to remind them of who God is and how God can help us. Let me just read the psalm to you. I've entitled this sermon, We Will Not Fear. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Lord, we acknowledge this morning, God, we want to exalt you. Let this time of reflection on the sermon, the reflection on your word, let this exposition have its intended effect, Lord. Let your word comfort us. Let your word remind us that you are our stronghold. You are our strength. Where else can we go but you? And I pray that this text would come home in our hearts this morning, that we would take it from this place and remember that we trust in you, God. We will not fear. We trust in you. Amen. Ten years after Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, ten years later, not only is the Pope trying to kill Luther through all of his agents and the Roman Catholic Church is hunting him down, he came under personal intense suffering. The Black Plague had come home to Germany. The Black Plague had once... uh, killed 50 to 60 percent of the population of Europe. It's estimated at least 100 million people died worldwide when the Black Plague hit in the 1350s. A third of Europe had died. If you got it, there was a 60 percent chance you were going to die. Well, it didn't go away after that first wave came through Europe. It came back every so often. And the plague would be here and the plague would be there. And so you had to be diligent, you had to be careful. Cities were quarantined. And it came to Germany during Martin Luther's time in 1527. He had to deal with the plague in his beloved Germany that he was trying to reform. Even Luther's own son almost died from it. And Luther struggled with, should he go to the countryside? Should he get away from the city while there was still time? 
and they decided to stay. They decided to take care of the sick. He decided to continue preaching God's word. He decided to continue having church and preaching the gospel of Christ. Well, he had all of these troubles. His, his own family was getting sick. His son almost died. He had his own chronic diseases that he was suffering with. And he often fainted as he studied and worked. He would just pass out from the stress, from the illnesses. And when someone would bring him bad news of a new death in the church or in the city, when someone would bring him news of how the Catholic Church was trying to capture him, he would tell his friend Philip Melanchthon, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. And it was based on this psalm that Luther wrote one of the best hymns of the church. We know it as a mighty fortress is our God. It comes directly from this psalm. Uh, he wrote a hymn that has been sung since 1527. I'll just remind you of some of the lyrics we just sang. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our shelter he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. But then the good news did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. We were not, we're not the right man, that's Christ, on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be, Jesus Christ, it is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name. From age to age the same, he must win the battle. So when the storms of life came, Luther sang that psalm. He, he looked at this psalm right here. This is a psalm that has encouraged God's people for thousands of years. Well, undoubtedly, uh, we are having a suffering all the time in our life and in our world. But particularly right now, there's a lot of panic. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of unbelievers very afraid. There are believers fearing. Uh, I don't want to give you all the numbers, but uh, the coronavirus itself uh, is being confirmed. More and more cases in our area is spreading throughout Texas. It's affecting our life, our economy. It's causing some of our own members not to be able to be here today because of uh, the amino compromise or bad health that they already have. Some have to work to keep the, the food supply going. Others work in health care and soon will be swamped. And so this affects our congregation, even if it might not affect you, even if you're young, even if you're healthy, even if you think it's all overblown. It is affecting our world. It is affecting our country, our city, our state, and it's affecting our church. That does not mean we should fear, though. We have God. He is our strength. We should not fear. We should not give in to the panic. We should not give in to the fear. We should not go stock up on groceries the last us 10 years. It's all going to go bad anyway. And we should long to see Christ. It's not wrong to say, you know what, if I perish, I perish. Luther said that. He said, I'm going to stay in the city and take care of people. If I perish, I perish, but I'm going to do what the Lord's called me to do. But at the same time, we are called to serve the Lord as long as he gives us life. We are called to honor him, to obey him. And we are called to have compassion for others, compassion for the weak, compassion for the helpless. So when trouble comes, where are you going to look for? Where are you going to look for help? Where are you going to look for strength? Are you just going to say, you know what, my immune system is great. There's no way. There's no way I could ever get sick. Well, the flu kills more people right now than the coronavirus, so you could get the flu and die. People die every day. For a while when they were doing uh, construction out here, someone was dying like every week right out here on this highway. Young people die. There are many things that are happening. You could be persecuted. You could have a serious illness. You could lose your job. There are many ways we can suffer. But this psalm points us to the answer that we need. 
It, it tells us why we shouldn't fear. It, it points us to God. It points us to our powerful Savior. It gives us hope. It was written over 3,000 years ago. And it's a message, though, that remains timeless. And it can be applied today to us. It's not just for Israel. And it's not just for early believers in the church. It's for believers of every generation. What I want you to understand from this psalm this morning is the three reasons not to fear. Three reasons not to fear. Three reasons to put our trust in God. Because things are not going to get better for a few weeks. We need to put our trust in God. Believers need to put their trust in God. Unbelievers need to put their trust in Christ for salvation. If you're taking notes, there's going to be three headings. You'll see in the scripture here, each section ends with Selah. Each section ends with Selah. There's three major sections. God is is giving us hope from this. There are believers right now in America that cannot meet this morning. West Coast, East Coast. John MacArthur's church, many of us were there a few weeks ago for a great conference. They're not allowed to meet. They're too, they're too big. They break the cap, and they're broadcasting online sermons. There are some in San Antonio who are too big to meet, or at least they consider the mayor's uh, declaration uh, against them to meet, and they're broadcasting online. But we're thankful to be here. We're thankful to look into God's Word. We're thankful to see what He has to tell us to give us hope. Do you have hope? Or are you going to let these things get you down? Do you have fear? Well, let's look. Number one. What does God's word tell us? That God is our strength. That God is our strength. He is the one that holds us up. If we look to ourselves, if we get prideful and think we can, we can withstand anything. Well, you know what the Bible says about those who are prideful. It's just a matter of time before they fall. But God raises up the humble. He lowers the proud and he raises up the humble. The creator of the universe is the one who protects when our whole world is crumbling down. Your personal world, if you have struggles in your own life, or the society at large. God is our refuge and strength. That's what the psalmist here writes. These are the sons of Korah, by the way, not not David writing this psalm. This is something they would sing regularly, regularly in their worship, reminding themselves that God is our strength. This phrase here uses two figures, refuge and strength, to give us confidence in the all-powerful God of the universe. Refuge is a major theme in the Psalms. The verb to take refuge comes up 25 times in the Psalms. It's almost as if God's people need to know that he is our refuge, that we need to take refuge in him. Of course he knows. And the noun refuge occurs 12 times. Almost all of these, the 20 or 37 times it comes up, almost all of these refer to God himself. What does the word mean, refuge? Well, it means in Hebrew to to have a place of protection, a shelter from enemies. It can be translated a fortress, which is where Luther got the the term fortress, a castle, a stronghold, a place you would run into when your enemies were attacking you, a place that would protect you, a place with walls, with towers. In ancient times, cities were built up on hills and they provided a safe place for people during an attack. And it's saying here that, that God is our refuge and he is our strength as well. That's the second figure used here. It speaks of God's power to sustain his people when trouble comes. It is his strength that we have to rely on. Not our own. You're not strong enough. You're not strong enough to preserve your life. You're not strong enough to preserve anything without God doing it. 
You're certainly not strong enough to save yourself eternally. It's God who is our strength. He's the one who keeps us. He's the one who protects us. Go forward to Psalm 61. This gets opened up a bit more. Psalm 61 in the first four verses. This is a psalm of David. So David is using similar language here. David comes before the time of the sons of Korah. David says in Psalm 61, Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge and the shelter of your wings. God is our strength. He is our protection. He is the one we put trust in. You can see how this idea of God being our strength and refuge is taught over and over in the Psalms. And back in Psalm 46, the writer is saying, He is there for our protection. He is there to give us strength. And he opens this up more. He says, A very present help in trouble. When trouble comes, God is present. God is there. He is there to help us. He is there to strengthen us. He is there to protect us. He's always there. God God cannot not be somewhere. God is everywhere. God is everywhere. And He is there. And He knows when we need protection. He knows when we're praying for help. He knows when we need strength. And the fact that that He is a great help is emphasized here in the Hebrew. We don't see it as, as much in the English. But in Hebrew, the word help, a very present help, the word help comes first in the phrase. Literally, I might translate it, a help in distresses being found abundantly. God's a help in all distresses. And not only is he a help, but he's found there abundantly to help us. He's always there to give us what we need. To do for us what we cannot do ourselves. The word for troubles here in Hebrew is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe intense anxiety. It's not just what's going on around you, but it's the trouble that you have inside your heart, the intense anxiety. Uh, Often used to describe a woman's pain during her first childbirth. Anguish at a besieging army, the terror of a raping army, and Jacob's distress, which is going to be the worst time upon the earth, a great tribulation. That's Jacob's distress. These are some of the most frightening experiences a human can ever go through. And it says God is there abundantly. He is our refuge. He is our strength. This verse is saying God's always there. He knows what's going on. He's in control. He's always there. R.C. Sproul used to say, if one molecule, if there's just one molecule that's in rebellion to God, then God's not God because he controls all things. He controls every molecule of the universe. There's not one stray atom that's outside of God's control and plan. Nothing happens at all in creation that's not planned by God. So therefore, because of our all-powerful God, the writer here goes on to open this up, to tell us how sufficient God is, to tell us we should not be afraid. Therefore, we will not fear. Why? Because we're strong? Because we're so smart? Because we're so healthy? Because of God. Because of who God is. He is our refuge and strength. Therefore, we will not fear. Now, sometimes fear is a good thing. If you find yourself in the middle of the freeway and there are 
massive trucks coming down the road. You should be afraid and get out of the street. That's right. That's a good kind of fear. That's a natural fear God has put in us. But often when we fear, it's a sinful fear. It's a fear of the unknown. It's a fear of what might happen tomorrow. What might happen if the president says this? Or the news might scare us with all of their panic. Or what happens to our kids tomorrow? And what if we die in a car accident? And what if, what if, what if, what if? Irrational fears. Fear of the unknown. Fear of running out of toilet paper. You know people have survived in a long time without toilet paper? It was invented, I looked this up, 1857. There was no toilet paper before 1857. Now America consumes 7 billion rolls of toilet paper every year. That's a nice comfort. But the fact that there's no toilet paper on the shelves actually scares, I mean, really scares people. It's a nice comfort. But should that shake us up? Should that make us fearful of the unknown and what's to come? No, because much worse than being out of toilet paper or even some of our favorite food items, look what he says here in verse 2. Though the earth should change, speaking of earthquakes, though the crust of the earth begins to change and quake, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, as a result of the earthquakes, it's so bad that whole mountains fall into the sea. Though its waters roar, and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. What makes the waters roar and foam when there's an earthquake? Well, the, the earth moving, its crust moving, makes them roar and foam. But he's talking here about a, a tidal wave or a tsunami. They knew of these things in ancient times. It happened. It happened and they knew this was a destructive force. He's describing here a terrifying picture of creation being undone. If you read Genesis 1, God separates the land from the water. He puts everything in its place. And when the earth quakes due to, due to sin, due to corruption introduced by Adam and Eve, natural disasters occur. And when the earth shakes, massive destruction occurs. Even though these things happen, we shall not fear. I've only been in one small earthquake in my life. That was scary enough. We were teaching out at the, the jail in, in L.A., and it's, it's a massive jail. It's out kind of near the base of the mountains there. And uh, the, the building, portable building, began to move, or at least I thought it was moving. And the floor seemed to move, and things got a little bit fuzzy. And no one did anything different. So you can tell I'm the only one not from California in that room. Everyone's sitting there, and I'm teaching the Bible, and I'm trying to keep talking, and things are beginning to sway a bit. Turned out it was a 3.9 earthquake. 3.9. Nothing. Nothing. Just sounded like some thunder that shook the building. In 2004, on December 26th, an earthquake hit near Sumatra. That was 9.3. 9.3 in the Indian Ocean. December 26, 2004. It's the second largest earthquake ever recorded on a seismograph. Estimated to have the power of 23,000 atomic bombs. It actually shook the earth, the entire planet vibrated as much as half an inch, scientists think. That's how massive it was. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. What kind of destruction did that cause? Well, a 50-foot tidal wave, a tsunami, 
came, traveled 3,000 miles, killed 228,000 people in a day. 228,000 people died from that tidal wave when the oceans foamed and roared because the earth quaked. People were missing. 11 countries were affected. Perhaps the most destructive tsunami in history, we don't know. That was on a Sunday. Christians were in that area worshiping in churches. Whole churches wiped out as they're worshiping. People never to be seen again. Great fear. Great panic in that area. And the psalmist says, even though the earth shakes and tsunamis come and wipe out people, we should not fear. Yeah. Why? Because who God is, He is our strength. Even such a, a massive display of, of a destructive force should not make us fear. Now that's easier said than done. We, we often resort back to our flesh. We go back to not trusting in God. But the psalmist says we should not. We will not fear. Even though these massive things happen. That's the point just of this first section of Psalm 46. God is our strength. Even though the whole world comes crashing down, God is our strength. He will hold us up. John Calvin wrote about this verse. The, the reformer John Calvin said, Our faith is really and truly tested only when we are brought into the very severe conflicts and when even hell itself seems open to swallow us up. It's a test. These things are tests. Are you going to follow God? Are you going to remain faithful and trust in God? Are you going to give in to fear? Or are you going to Trust in yourself? Who will put your trust in God through these trials in your life? What will you do when the mountains come tumbling down in your own world, in your own personal world? You get a diagnosis. A family member dies. Things seem hopeless. Can you make it through the trials? You can. God's Word says you can if you come to Him, if you trust in Him, if you rely upon Him. He is our fortress. Psalm 54.10 For the mountains may be moved and the hills may shake. But God says, My loving kindness will not be removed from you. My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So God's our mighty fortress. He is there to protect us. Let's look now to God as our peace. Number two, the second section here of the psalm speaks of God being our peace. Yes, we need strength, but God knows we need peace as well. We need peace of mind. We need God to be our peace. And He will give us peace. Why? This section is going to tell us He'll give us peace because He makes His home among His people. He dwells with us. And He always has dwelled with His people. Verse 4, there is a river. Right there, that's already much more peaceful, isn't it? A river. The river's not likely to wipe us away. It's not like an earthquake. Rivers do flood, but, but this is a river whose, whose streams make glad the city of God. Those who live in the city of God are made glad by this river. The holy dwelling places of the Most High. I love rivers. They do give a sense of peace, of tranquility. I grew up fishing on rivers, camping on rivers. Our hill country rivers are some of the most beautiful rivers I've ever seen. When we lived in California, we never hardly saw a river. It was the desert out there. 
I missed being in the hill country and seeing rivers. Well, ancient cities were always built near a source of water. You could not survive without a source of water, so they were just being smart by building them close to a water source. But the problem with Jerusalem, it was built up in the mountains, far from any major river. Now, there was a small stream that would come up, just enough to give people water in times of need there. It's the stream of Siloam. You can go to Jerusalem today and still see it. King Hezekiah later, he built a water tunnel underneath the city to carry water in during a siege. And you can go there and still see and walk through the stream. And you can see Hezekiah's name that they found on one of the stones. This, of course, would bring joy to people to have water. But I don't, I don't think the, the verse is talking about that specific stream. I think it's a, a figure of speech here. This whole psalm, really, it's poetry. It's a figure of speech. It's, it's pointing to something greater than what it describes. I think the psalmist writes here not of a, of a stream that we know by name, but the river of life that has many streams branching off from it. A river that makes all those who drink it glad to be in the presence of God. Just so you don't think I'm making that up, let's... Parse that out. Let's study that and see if that's the case. Does God use this analogy of a river to describe the river of life that makes everyone glad who drinks it? This is a theme, I think, throughout Scripture. Psalm 36.8. Go to Psalm 36.8. We're not doing allegorical interpretation. We're realizing that, that poetry is figurative. The Psalms being poetry often point to a greater reality. Psalm 36.8, they drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. Not an actual river, but the good things flowing out from God. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light we see light. If you have time sometime, read the end of Ezekiel. And it speaks of, in the millennial kingdom, a great river that will run from under the temple in Jerusalem. It will flow both east and west. It will turn the ocean into fresh water, Ezekiel says. This river will water the land. The trees will grow along it. And it says their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Zechariah 14.8 And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. This thing is going to flow out from Jerusalem, from God's temple at all times. And it will be healing. It will be good. It will give life. Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So I take the river mentioned here in Psalm 46.4 to be the river of life. A sign of God's provision. God dwells in Jerusalem at that time. And He gives them the good things coming from Him. He gives them life. He blesses them. He gives them peace. We also know from this word for river in Hebrew that it doesn't describe a little stream little stream of Hezekiah that's here today. We might call it a creek, 
or crick, depending on where you're from. Just a little stream of water. This Hebrew word for river speaks of a big river flowing. So I take it as the river of life, the river of God's blessings. Figuratively, we trust in God. Now notice the, the contrast. We have this peaceful river that's contrasted with the roaring, foaming tidal wave back in verse 3. But this river makes people glad. In other words, the, the world may throw everything at you. Natural disasters. People might come at you. But God keeps His promise to eternally preserve those who trust in Him. They're connected to God through His river of life. If we want to use that analogy. What does this mean? Does this mean that no matter what happens, you're going to live to a great old age like Moses? No, it means God's going to preserve you. Either physically He'll preserve you, you should thank Him for it, but certainly spiritually. It's better to go and be with Christ. And if that's the case, then He has preserved you until the very end. If you could lose your salvation, you would, John MacArthur always says, and that's true. We don't have the strength to do it, and we can rest in God's peace that He will preserve us. Well, not only does God preserve us in his peace, but it goes on to say the reason is because he dwells among them. He is in the dwelling places of the Most High. God, it says, is in the midst of her, in the midst of the city. What's the city? Well, the city's Jerusalem. He's in the midst of Jerusalem. He's in the midst of God's people. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Now, the city of God is Jerusalem. The city of God in ancient times is the temple where God was. He's there. He's protecting them. As long as they turned to Him and obeyed them according to the Mosaic Covenant, He would keep them physically. He would protect them. And God says the city of Jerusalem is His resting place forever. His dwelling there was among them in the temple. He is protecting them. And the psalmist is saying that even though the world is unstable, even though everyone is coming to attack Jerusalem at times throughout history, exactly the opposite when God dwells there. He gives peace. It's comfort. It's calm. It's peaceful. Everything outside can be falling apart. But God is protecting His people. How could God let anything destroy His home as long as He dwells there? Now, He did leave there when Babylon came and destroyed. You see that in Ezekiel. The glory of God left the temple. Then the Babylonians came and destroyed everything. Well, where is God's special presence today? Where is it? It's in believers. It's in believers. It's in the church. Not the building, but in believers. We just studied in Ephesians 2 how God is building His temple. The temple of God is the church. The people, believers, they're being built up, remember, brick by brick, stone by stone. Ephesians 2, Jew and Gentile together. Now, there will be a time when God dwells physically in Jerusalem, when Christ is there. But right now, He is dwelling in all of us. God is in us. God is protecting us. And what's the reaction that we should have? What is, what is the reaction that we should have? We should know that God is our peace. We should trust in Him and realize He's protecting us, and He's not going to let His church be destroyed. Now, certainly believers will die. Certainly, churches will disappear at times, but the church as a whole will not disappear. But what's the, the nation's reaction? What is man's reaction, the unsaved man's reaction to the fact that God is dwelling amongst his people? 
Verse 6, the nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. Not only does God protect his city, but he destroys its enemies with his voice. With his voice, it says. The earth melted. It's like when lightning strikes and just melts something. And the nations are raging against God. They hate God. But they're going to totter. They're going to fall. It's the same word that's used for the mountains slipping into the heart of the sea. They're going to fall over. They're going to shake like the earth. We can't see it in English, but in Hebrew it's the same verb. They're going to shake. They're going to quake. They're going to fall. God's voice is that powerful. Verse 7, the Lord, this is in all caps, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The city of God has at their beck and call their host of angels that God has given. Now, we can't call up angels. Don't don't get me wrong here. We can't just say, angels, present yourself and protect us. But God, through prayer, is protecting us. You remember what Elijah said? Do not fear. 2 Kings 6, 16. Do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So the enemies of God are coming against the prophets here. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Chariots of fire. God is with us. He is protecting us. We don't control these things. We don't control angels. But through prayer, God protects us. Through prayer, he gives us peace. Well, let's look now at number three. God is our king. God is our king, verses 8 through 11. So he's our strength, he's our peace, and he is our king. What does a king do? A king conquers in ancient times. The king goes out and conquers the enemies. He conquers the unruly creation too, we might say. But he conquers our enemies. Come behold, verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord. Come and examine them, the author is saying here. Come and look at what Yahweh, the God of Israel, has done. Look at what he's done. It's a call to the world. Both unbelievers, come and examine this magnificent, awesome God and believers as well. Remember who God is. Come and examine what he's done. Remember what God has done. He's our king. One commentator said this verse addresses the wicked who need to realize their doom is sealed and that addresses the righteous who need to build their confidence. So as we look at the deeds of the Lord, it gives us further confidence. It reminds us that God is king of all creation. The God, the Son, is coming back to rule over all creation. Gives us confidence in Him. Come and examine the works of the Lord. He has wrought desolations in the earth. These desolations are the the horrors caused by God's judgment. God will so severely bring judgment upon his enemies that will astonish everyone. Desolations. Everything will be wiped out. We're not in the end times yet. A little virus going around the world is not the end times. It's going to be much worse. The seven-year tribulation, there's going to be terrible wars, natural disasters, plagues, famines. God will pour out his wrath upon sinners and unbelievers. He will lay waste. He has wrought desolations in the earth. And also, secondly, it says he makes wars to cease. So after those desolations, after those wars, he will cause them all to cease. It's it's a forced peace. 
It's not as if everyone believes in God suddenly and they stop fighting. People are coming against God's people. People are coming against God and his city. And what does it say? He makes them. He makes them. He causes them to stop fighting. He brings an end to all wars upon the earth. The idea here is that, yes, every knee will bow, of course. But it's not because they all believe in Christ. It's because they're forced to. God is so powerful that he brings about this peace by conquering all his enemies. Well, the rest of the verse opens that up. It says in verse 9, he breaks, literally smashes the bow. This isn't just God gently saying, okay, let's have your weapons. No, he smashes the bow. He cuts the spear in two. Literally in Hebrew, he hacks it to pieces. These enemies, these nations fighting against God, warring against God's people, they're completely smashed. Weapons of warfare are gone. The warrior can't fight without weapons. How do you, how do you fight without weapons? You can't fight without weapons. He burns the chariots with fire. The chariot was... An ancient tank, essentially. And they could kill more people than a single soldier could. More than the bows and arrows. But even the chariot, even the chariot will be consumed with fire. It will be burned up by God. All of God's enemies will be destroyed. All of God's people's enemies will be destroyed. He's going to bring an end to all of these things. So what's the response that a person should have? If a person's an unbeliever and they hear this passage, what's the response? Verse 10. Cease striving. Stop fighting against God. Look what's going to happen to people who fight against God. What's going to happen? He's going to smash them. He's going to hack them to pieces. All their weapons will be gone. He's going to burn them with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. To cease means to relax here. To let go of your weapons. Stop fighting. Stop struggling against God. Those who have not put their trust in God have to stop fighting against them. We often think this verse is to believers. I, I think this is an evangelistic passage. In the context of war, war against God, it is showing that, that unbelievers need to cease. This is not spend some quiet time, stop resisting the Lord. That's in other places in Scripture. This is the unbeliever better stop fighting against God because look what is going to happen. You've got to do so now. Those who don't know Christ as Savior, those who haven't repented of their sin, have to do it before it's too late. Before they die and go to be punished eternally now or Christ returns and wipes everyone out that doesn't believe in Him. It's not a popular teaching today, but it's here, Old Testament and New Testament. Christ is coming. Psalm 2, pay homage to the Son, or older translations, kiss the Son, because He's coming back to rule. He's coming back to reign. He is our King. He will put all things under His feet. If you refuse to bow the knee now to Christ's Lordship, if you, if you have this lifetime of sin and anger against God, as we just heard about even in a testimony, well, God's going to punish that. That's why those testimonies were great, because we heard of repentance, we heard of regeneration. Cease striving. There was, there was a stopping, a relaxing of striving. The weapons were thrown down because God changed their hearts. Do homage to the Son, for His wrath will soon be kindled, Psalm 2. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Even in Psalm 2, there's a great refuge because God is going to go out on a horse and He's going to conquer every enemy. What a, 
What does the psalm end with? Look at that. How many times have we been told this? How many times have we been told this? That God is our strength. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. We need to be reminded, even in this psalm, it's repeated three times or three sections where it's proving to us who God is. The Lord, Yahweh of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. We need to hear these words from the psalm, so he repeats it. Now, it's interesting. I think it's a New Testament connection here. This phrase, with us, you see that the Lord of hosts is with us. It's mentioned in verse 11. It's mentioned in verse 7 as well. And it's one Hebrew word. You, you say that in one word in Hebrew, Emmanu. And then the word for God in Hebrew here is El. God with us. God is with us. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. That's where we get the word Emmanuel in the New Testament. It's, it's from the Hebrew. God with us. Matthew in the book of Matthew says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated, Matthew says, means God with us. God is with us. He was with ancient Israel, and he's with us now. Christ is with us. Christ is with us. Christ is in us. Christ protects us. Because he's with us, we need to acknowledge that he will give us strength, that he will give us peace, that he is our king. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in God. Put your faith in him. He's the one who will protect us. Often in the Reformation and even up till today, people would teach in the church with a catechism. And they would ask questions. The catechism is where you ask a question and you're supposed to get a a response. And children, even today, learn theology through this. And the Heidelberg Catechism starts like this. What is our only hope in life and death? That's an important question, isn't it? What's our only hope in life and in death? Here's the answer. Biblical answer. That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the only answer you can give as a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you don't have that answer. You better be scared right now and every day of your life if you're not saved. You have to be scared. You have no hope. You don't get these promises. This is not to the unbeliever. This is not to the false believer. These these things aren't promised to people who aren't in God. But those who are in God, our, our body and soul don't even belong to us. They belong to God. He is taking care of us. He is watching over us. Stop worrying. Stop worrying about what's going to happen. You're going to see some bad news today, tomorrow. Case numbers are going to keep going up for a few weeks. It's going to get pretty scary for some folks. Stop worrying. God's in charge. What can you do? What can you do about anything that's happening in the world right now? All you can really do is do something for your family. You can try to wash your hands and be safe and be be hygienic. But ultimately, it's all in God's hand. Washing your hands is not going to protect you if God is calling you home will go and be with him. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready to see him? Both body and soul, God has us if we're in him. So let's pray to him. Let's ask him to remind us of these things. We will not fear. Why? Because of who God is. He's our strength. He's our peace. He is our king. Amen. Lord, we come before you this morning.
knowing that we don't control a single molecule in this universe. We think we do sometimes. We think we're in charge of our own lives. But you are. You're in charge of every atom, and you're in charge of the planet, and you're in charge of earthquakes, natural disasters. You're in charge of illnesses, diseases. You're in charge of our own lives. Everything is yours. Everything is owned by you, created by you, controlled by you. But we can do nothing if it's not your will. We can do nothing if it's not preordained by you. We must acknowledge that. Give us give us the hope. Give us the desire to acknowledge that very thing. That you are God, we are not. That our trust is in you, not in ourselves. That Christ is our Savior. That your Spirit is with us. And that we should not and will not fear. We ask that you would grant this prayer in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.